Matthew 20, verse 1, it says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at about noon and at three, about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Matthew 20 as we look at this familiar and yet pretty challenging parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Some of you might remember that at the start of this year, January, one of the, the big stories that dominated the headlines was the question of equal pay, especially in the BBC. You might remember that. BBC had been forced to publish its earnings, the earnings of employees, and what was soon discovered was that there were some vast discrepancies between uh, the pay of those who were doing essentially the same job. The discrepancies were most noticeable between men and women and between uh, co-hosts. Uh, so a, a female co-host was, was shown to be paid significantly less than her male counterpart. And understandably, there was an outcry, uh, and it all came to be referred to as the gender pay gap. And you remember that that uh, that, that became a, a big issue in the news, because there was a deep sense of people that if you did the same job, you should basically get the same reward. Well, if that's the case, we should find the story that Jesus tells us in Matthew 20 a very odd story indeed. No doubt Jesus' first hearers would have been shocked by it because in the story, those who work all day, do a 12-hour shift, get the same payment as those who work for one hour. Now, that would be an employment practice today that would end you up in the Nolan Show or an industrial tribunal or of some kind or another. But it's, it's so important that we understand 
what Jesus is saying here because he introduces this story with some really important words. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, he's saying, this is how God works. He, here's how things are in His kingdom. And the point is, it is so different to how we are used to doing things, and so different from the sort of hunches we get of what might be fair and appropriate, that if we go by our hunches, we will understand God wrongly. We will not grasp how He works. And if we think that way, we will get God all wrong. So we've got to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here because He is telling us something that we would not figure out by ourselves. So much of His revelation and teaching to us is like that. It goes against what we might understand the way things to be. Well, let's remind ourselves what happens in the story. Jesus tells us what would have been a, a familiar scene in the countryside of his day. It's harvest time, and the vineyard worker, uh, the vineyard owner goes out to get some workers. These are day laborers. There are many parts of the world where these practices continue today. And in living memory in, in Ireland, there were similar practices in the past. And these laborers would have been in the marketplace waiting for work, uh, this was like a, a zero-hour contract. There was no uh, confidence about how much work you would get or when you would get it. You just turned up and did the work that you were hired for for that day. And as verse tells us, verse 2 tells us, they would have been given an agreed rate for the day. The standard worker's wage for the day was a denarius, and that was what was agreed. Now, this would have happened. This first batch of workers would have gone out around dawn, 6 a.m., uh, that was when time was uh, measured from. And so the third hour, some of the translations will have the third hour and the sixth hour and so on. Third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour, 12 noon, and then 3 p.m. And then at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., some more workers are hired. And you'll notice with uh, those workers, there's not an agreed rate of pay, uh, particularly, or he just says, whatever is right, I will give you. So these folk didn't know what they were getting. Now, there was no uh, lighting that you could have put up in the fields or anything like that, so you had to finish whenever the sun went down. That was six o'clock. And so, in the dusk, all the workers would have gathered in to receive their pay. And the owner gives instructions that he should pay first, or through his uh, servant, he should pay those who had done the least, those who had come at 5 p.m., the 11th hour. And to their surprise, and everybody else's surprise, they get a denarius. Well, you can just imagine what everybody else in the queue is thinking. You know, they're thinking, we're in the money. I don't know if you saw that awful uh, Sainsbury's clip this week, the, the uh, president of Sainsbury's singing, we're in the money. He was off camera, and uh, uh, always never do that whenever you're being interviewed on in TV. But, but that's exactly what they would have been singing, we're in the money, we're landed. He gets a denarius, denarius for one hour's work. We must be getting 12 denarius. That's like a, an absolute fortune. But as the payment goes on, it looks like everybody gets a denarius. We're not told about the people in the middle, but we're certainly told about the people at the end who worked for 12 hours. They got a denarius. I think we can assume that everybody gets the same. Well, they're on the phone. The union reps are called in. There's absolute uproar. 
this is a terrible injustice. You can see what they say in verse 11 and 12. When they received it, they began to grumble against the owner. These men were hired at the last, worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Now, the owner doesn't back down. See how he answers, 13. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So what are we learning here? Is this some new model for labor relations of some kind? Well, obviously not. It's a model not for how we should do things, but it is a model for how God does things. Remember, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And the big point here is the same as we were saying with the boys and girls, God saves us by His grace. We do not earn what God gives us. It comes to us by gift. Now, that seems a very simple statement, not one that we would not have heard before, but it is profound, and we're going to spend all of our lives here trying to grasp that and live in the light of it, because it goes so much against what we feel is the way God would do things. You see, these workers thought that they could come to the landowner and say, look, we have done this, you owe me that. And graciously, the owner says, that's not how I do things. That's not how this works. Now, all of what Jesus is teaching us here comes in response to the question from Peter back in chapter 19, verse 27. We have left everything to follow you. What well then will there be for us? You remember that the, the disciples had been rattled by the rich young ruler who was walking away from Jesus. They thought he was practically a disciple already. And Jesus says it's really hard for the rich to be saved, and it's impossible without God. And Peter says, Well, look, we've left everything to follow you. We have started to follow you. So so what is in it for us? And Jesus answers that marvelously in chapter 19 and 28 following. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying it is marvelously worth it to follow Him. But in telling us this parable then, He says to us, as it were, as you think of what lies ahead, when you think of the blessings of eternal life, which are for you, if you are My disciple, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that it is all of God's grace. You have not earned it. It comes as a gift from the Father. Now, elsewhere, the Bible does teach us that there is reward as far as eternal life is concerned, and even some variation, perhaps, in the experience of heaven. That's not in mind here. Here, the point is that all believers get the same gift of eternal life, and it's all of God's grace. Now, why is Jesus at such 
pains to point this out. Why, as he speaks to the disciples about heaven, does he feel that he has to come and then really underline that this is a gift that they have not earned? Well, simply because we forget that so easily. We so easily slip into thinking or living as if we have earned what God gives us. And what happens whenever we do that? Well, everything falls apart. Everything goes wrong whenever we think that. So, so here are a number of consequences. First of all, we, whenever we think that, whenever we, we, we act as if we have earned eternal life, we think that we have a right to say how our lives are to go. So, so, so we're saying God's salvation is a gracious gift, so therefore we cannot determine the shape of our lives. Let's unpack that. These early workers, the ones who have worked 12 hours, they have a very clear understanding of how things should be. They're quick to point out this injustice. They're able to describe exactly how they should be treated. But you see, the problem is they are acting as if they're the boss and not the worker. And they're not the boss. They are the workers. And the landowner points this out to them. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So Jesus is saying here, remember, God is sovereign. He is the one who's in control. And the point here is not so much that he's sovereign over the distant stars, though he is, or sovereign over the falling of the rain, though he is, but he's also sovereign over your life and mine. He's the one who says how things should be in our lives, especially in our lives as we follow the Lord Jesus. There's a great example of this in John's gospel, chapter 21. You remember after Jesus is raised from the dead, he meets with some of the disciples on the beach. They have breakfast on the beach, and there he reinstates Peter publicly, as it were, as he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And at the end of that encounter, Jesus says to Peter these words. He tells him how his life will be. He tells him what discipleship will look like for Peter. Chapter 21, verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you not want, do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So, so Jesus is looking into the future. He is saying, this is how your life is going to be, Peter. He's referring to the fact that Peter will die a martyr's death. He will stretch out his hands, and, and, and people will nail him to a cross, as, as, as it turned out. Now, that's a bombshell for Peter, not an easy thing for him to hear news like that. And he immediately thinks, well, okay, if it's like that for me, what's it going to be like for the other guys? And he turns around, and John is there behind him. And he says to Jesus, well, well, well what about him? If, if that's what discipleship looks like for me, is it going to be equally hard for him? Now, what would you expect Jesus to say? You might expect him to explain himself, wouldn't you? Well, Peter, it's going to be hard for 
It's going to be hard for you, but it's going to be hard for John too. There's going to be exile. There's going to be loneliness and so on. But he doesn't say that at all. Jesus answered verse 22 of John 21, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Really, he's saying to Peter, Peter, I'm sovereign over what your life will look like, and I'm sovereign over what John's life will look like. And if my purpose for you is hardship, and my purpose for him is ease, then that's my business and not yours. Your job is to follow me along the path that I have set out for you. Your job is to be faithful within the parameters of that calling. Now, that's an implication, you see, of the fact that we do not earn our salvation. I remember uh, Tim Keller telling a story of a, a woman in his church who was considering becoming a Christian. She was, she was measuring up what commitment to the Lord Jesus would look like, and then he began to chat with her, and he said, now, you know, what are your concerns as you think about what it means to, to follow Jesus? And she says, well, the thing that I'm really struggling with is that, that God saves entirely by grace. And Keller asked her, well, what was it about that that particularly uh, concerned her? And she said this, if he saves me entirely by grace, I know that he can ask anything of me. And she was absolutely right. There are no limits, you see. You see, if we contribute to our salvation, then there would be ground for us to say, now, now God, I brought this to the table. I need this from you. But if it's all by His grace, then He can ask anything of us. You know, older Christians of a previous generation had a much better grasp of this than we do. And it's reflected in some of the hymns that they wrote. There's an old hymn by Horatius Boner. I don't usually uh, quote them at this length. I'm going to read it all, however, because it's stark in its placing of how our lives should go into the hands of God. This is what it says. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, Lead me by thine own hand. Choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be or rough. It will be still the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot. I would not, if I might, choose thou, choose thou for me, my God, so I shall walk aright. Take thou my cup and fill it with joy or sorrow fill. As best to thee may seem, choose thou my good or ill. Choose thou for me, my friends, my sickness or my health. Choose thou my cares for me, my poverty or wealth. The kingdom that I seek is thine, so let the way that leads to it be thine. Else, I must surely stray. Not mine, not mine the choice, in things or great or small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. 
Now, that hymn was so popular at the time that it made it into our old Presbyterian hymn book. If you'd been Christian of a previous generation, you'd have sung that often. And yet, it's not sung so much today in our consumeristic society. In as much as that jars with us, we have not understood that God saves us entirely by His grace and is sovereign over our lives. God's salvation is a gracious gift, so we cannot call the shots on our lives. The second thing we want to say is that, that God's salvation is a gracious gift, and so uh, we, we should not look unhelpfully at others. We mustn't look at others to compare how their lot is compared to ours. That happens with Peter and John. We've just described that story, but it happens here too. You see what the, the, the workers say in uh, verse 12 of chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel. Uh, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. The word... Um, a begrudge, Jesus has the landowner respond to it, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. It's actually, it's actually the word, your eye is evil. That's what he says. In other words, you're seeing all of this wrong. You're looking at the wrong things. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a very helpful book, a very influential book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And, and he deals with this parable in it. And he says that one of the devil's tactics in your life and in mine is to come to us and say, look at what you have done in serving Christ. Look at what this has cost you. You have worked in the heat of the day. And what have you got for it? Your life has been tough. And then he says to us, and look at that person over there. What have they ever done? And yet, look how easy their lives have been. God's not treating you properly. You're hard done by. Look at how easily they've got off. And so, you get better at your brother and sister, and you grumble at God. And that leads to misery and unhappiness. He calls it spiritual depression. But you see, if you are reminded that God's salvation is all of grace then you know that He does not owe you anything, much less an easy life. And He knows what He is doing with you, and He knows what He is doing with your brother and sister, and your brother and sister's path could be very different from yours, and yet designed by a loving Heavenly Father to produce Christ-likeness and conformity to His Son in them, as it is for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we've got to be people who learn to leave the bookkeeping to God. In other words, he's saying, don't count up your service. Don't say, look at what I have done. Don't keep a record of the sacrifices that you have made in the cause of Christ. Don't think that way. Just cultivate a heart that is so amazed that you have been saved at all that you don't even consider it labor. I think it was C.T. Studd who said, I have never made a sacrifice. You see, that's all the way through the Bible, this sense 
that we so easily fall into measuring our own performance, our own effort. That's why we told the story with the boys and girls. Remember that elder brother in the story of the prodigal son? He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. You owe me, God. Even as the prodigal plans to come back to the father, he has a plan to to earn himself back into the Father's favor. It's deeply in our DNA. Now, we don't want to be like that. We want to be those who are delighted to work for the Lord. Remember when Jacob was working for Rachel for the hand of his bride whom he loved? He didn't see the seven years pass because his love for her was so much. We've got to love God like that. So that like, like the parable of the sheep and the goats, we're like those who, who Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you, you fed me and you, you, you took me in and you clothed me and so on. And, and, Jesus, and the, the people say, when did we do it, Lord? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. They, they, they didn't even know. We must be those who don't look unhelpfully at others and keep a record of how it's going in our service. And then lastly, just to say, we also don't grumble at God. We mustn't grumble at God because we see that here, don't we? In verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. You're unjust. They're saying, why are you doing this with me? What about them? What about me? Why me? This is the problem, isn't it? Why me? What about the heat of the day? What about the load that I have carried? You've got it all wrong. And yet, look at who it is that they're talking to. They're talking to the landowner who turns around in the face of these accusations in verse 13 and says, friend. How amazing. No worker should ever have spoken to an employer like this in that culture. It really would not have been done. And yet, whenever he's challenged, the master does not stand upon his status. He says to him, friend. Now, not friend, you're right, I've made a mistake, but friend, understand what I am like. Trust me with what I'm doing. And then in verse 15, he says, do you begrudge my generosity? You see, this is the nature of the master. He gives out of his riches to all. He gives to the undeserving, and he gives more than we should expect because he gives us eternal life. So we mustn't grumble at God because salvation is a gift. There's one thing we should see here, just in a word as we finish. Who who is it, according to this parable, who, who is it by implication who's going to be in heaven? There will be those who have followed Jesus just about all of their lives, some of whom who have borne the heat, the burden in the heat of the day, some of our brothers and sisters who today are, are in a prison in a Middle Eastern country for their faith. They've been there a long time. It's been desperately hard for them to follow Jesus. They've, they've borne the burden in the heat of the day. They'll be in heaven. There will be those who, who, like us, some of whom have been Christians for a long time, and yet, realistically, compared to our brothers and sisters in Yemen, it's not been so difficult for us to follow Jesus. We'll be in heaven. There will also be those who, 
have come in the later days of their lives, lived a life far from God. And yet in the, in the last days, maybe even on a deathbed, they've trusted in the Lord genuinely. Like the thief on the cross. They'll be in heaven. And, and you see, what this is saying is, is that they, they all get the same. We all get the same. We all get eternal life. Even those who come at the 11th hour, those who come at the 11th hour get a full salvation. They do not lose out. Oh, they may say, oh, I wish I'd done this years ago, but they still receive the blessing of eternal life. So even those who come late are fully blessed. Maybe that's some of us. We've not yet come. It's late in the day. Do you see that before we come to Christ, before we are employed in His service, we are doing nothing, according to the NIV, idle, according to the ESV? In other words, it's just saying the things that we've been living for, that we give ourselves to, they don't really matter. But today, you may come, and you will receive just as much as if you came when you were 12 or 16 years old, you'll receive eternal life. Because our God is that good. He is that generous. And He loves you that much. So why not come? Let's pray. Lord, we confess today that if we were to design salvation, it wouldn't be like this. We would mess it up. We would value our own contribution, and therefore, Lord, we would rule ourselves out. We thank You that You save us by Your grace, that You come to us gifting us salvation. Lord, we pray that You will help us to to really live in the light of that, to, to hand over to You what our lives should look like, to not measure ourselves against our brothers or our sisters, to not grumble against You. Help us to serve You with full hearts, confident that what You have for us is wonderful and gracious and will mean for us pleasure forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.